Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. For this week's episode, we have Lachlan, Hi, and Justin. This week we talk about Australia stealing credit for the famous kiwi bird from New Zealand, stars that eat their own planets along with ways to reclaim polluted areas and oil we are using for some fantastic bacteria. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So, Lachlan, you and I are both Australian, so we, we have a certain degree of pride in all things Australian, and we take ownership for a lot of things, especially that we have done and created, and especially anything that comes out of New Zealand, we, you know, we take credit for, you know, we say, you know, actually, really, New Zealand's just part of Australia, so it's all fine, it's just us anyway, and we've been doing that, actually, for years with the New Zealand's national bird, the kiwi. Wait, are you seriously claiming where we've been trying to poach New Zealand's only claim to fame, besides Sam Neill, Russell Crowe, you know, we've claimed, we tried, we claimed those guys. But uh, we also claimed the Kiwi, or at least attempted to, until now. So we've actually, it's been long theorised that the Kiwi is in fact related to the cassowary and the emu, birds in Australia that are native animals to Australia and very, very unique. Um, the Kiwi, for those of you who, who aren't aware, is a very small flightless bird with a very long and curved beak. It's, it's about the size of a chicken, if not smaller, and it's got a beak which is equal, probably about a quarter of the size of the length of its body. And it is the national bird of New Zealand. Now, Australia has laid claim to, uh, obviously, to the Kiwi's descendants by saying it's as New Zealand and Australia once joined together in Gondwana land, that clearly the, the, what developed into the Kiwi, which is an animal not found anywhere else in the world, is actually related to the Australian birds, like the emu, which is a flightless bird similar to an ostrich, and the, and the cassowary, which is a terrifying bird, which is actually very closely related to raptors, can walk down streets, open up people's houses and steal food. Yes, they exist as a thing and they're very terrifying. And um, the kiwi bird is actually very, very small, cute and adorable, and not really closely related to either of those. So it long been held, it just assumed really, that Australia was responsible for the kiwi. I mean, so when we analyze these things all we really have to go by is um geography yes um and sort of um so how continents shift and change and also the characteristics they're both flightless they're both you know similar size i mean the kiwi is quite a bit smaller but yeah it makes sense from a using logic a deductive logic that that's would be a, a good answer that's right and it's not till researchers at the University of Adelaide in Australia so again we're sort of doing the research as well <laughs> that actually found that the kiwi is actually really, really closely related to an extinct Madagascan elephant bird, which was two to three metres tall and 200 and almost 300 kilos in weight. And what they're actually saying is that the kiwi actually has a lot more genetically in common with that Madagascan extinct bird than it has to do with emus or cassowaries or any of the other Australian animals. So this is really interesting because it's saying that um, the emu and the kiwi, though being quite similar in how they look, are actually examples of convergent evolution where completely different phylogenetic trees trace back but have actually evolved to occupy very similar um, niches in, in the biosphere. Right, that's right. And what, what this is showing instead is that the Madagascan elephant bird, basically, um, and the 
the kiwi actually came from the same base and then went different ways. The elephant bird, obviously massively huge, two to three metres tall, and the kiwi, which is like, you know, half a metre less in height. And that's really, really interesting. They're both actual types of ratites, um, which is the actual technical name for them. And they've actually done this by analysing the ancestral DNA and ancestral samples of kiwis, as well as current ones, and looked at the, the samples that they have of this distinct elephant bird from Madagascar. So what they can do is they can have a genetic analysis. They can also examine like the geography, the morphology, which is what the birds look like and, and how their, their, their joints move and stuff like that. And then also the ecology, so the environments, what they eat and, and how they live. So the big question remains. Now, the big reason why we thought kiwis and Australian birds were linked was because they're next to each other. Madagascar, even when it was joined as part of the supercontinent of Gondwana to Australia, was ages away from where New Zealand ended up. So how did the kiwi and this elephant bird sort of join up? And what's actually speculated is the ratites, this, this root source of this bird, they're actually were flight, flight capable in the past. Now, they are, have evolved into flightless birds, but at the time when the continents together, they actually had the ability to fly. And that's how, they real, that's how they're theorising that the ratites actually dispersed across the world, which is the only way it would possibly explain the linked DNA that they're seeing. Now, they, they theorise that they, they actually dispersed around the world right after the time the dinosaurs went extinct. And what's really interesting about this is that when the dinosaurs went extinct, mammals and birds were really, really small and because they had to survive because there's the massive dinosaurs around. And then all of a sudden, once the dinosaurs died off, these things got crazily huge. So horses went from being about 30 centimetres in size, the ancestral horses, to massive two, three metre tall things, as did other mammals like rats and lions and everything that we know. So these birds do the same sort of thing. And in, in Madagascar, the ratite birds evolved into this massive two to three metre tall elephant bird. When the ratites got to New Zealand, they found that there was already a massive bird there, the famous and now extinct moa, which actually is quite similar to the emu and the cassowary. So instead of getting big, the ratite bird in New Zealand remained quite small and stayed as the cute, adorable, insect-eating, insect nocturnal bird that we know it, the kiwi. So this is an example about how um, things evolved to occupy different biological niches in order to survive without being outcompeted. That's right. And it also goes to show some of the amazing work you can do by some interesting genetic analysis combined with geology and archaeological studies. So we rely on a bunch of processes to try and break down pollutants that we create in our world. And often, it's a really big challenge to actually figure out ways to dispose of things safely. Now, we can't just throw everything out. We know that plastic bags, for example, take thousands of years to decompose, but we know that other things can take less time. But the same can be applied to hydrocarbons and crazy chemicals, especially oil, which can take a long time to break down, which is one of the reasons why oil spills are so dangerous. And the problem is, Justin, as well as being really, really annoying to contain and clean up because they spread everywhere, once we've actually got it all in one place and contained it, there's nowhere to really throw it because anywhere we put it, it'll actually poison the ground and the environment around it and eventually re-pollute. And leach into that groundwater and then travel somewhere else and escape. So really the only kind of solution they get at that point is to burn it or get rid of it some other way, which is quite unfortunate, messy, and really a huge waste. 
So what else can we do to actually dispose of things that are complex, like complex hydrocarbons, such as oil, safely? And this is where um, genetic modification and also a good understanding of plant biology can really come in handy. Okay, that's good, because I have very little of that. <laughs> so what we can actually do is we can either find or grow or modify plants to be able to break down pollutants or oil and to be able to actually grow and incorporate them into their cellular structure. Well, okay, so we're, what, so they're actually going to use it like some sort of fuel or basically make it their own? Yes, you can either, they can either use it as a fuel or they can at least suck it up without getting too sick and they can continue thriving even though they're containing those pollutants inside them. Right, so it's kind of like eating junk food. Yes, they, they can eat all the junk food and they, they can deal with it well enough that they can keep surviving. So in Finland, at the Aalto University, what, what have they actually done? So basically they've, they've used um, fungus to grow in soil that has been polluted with oil and other hydrocarbons. So really yep. volatile, toxic compounds. And, they, and so they basically got this fungus and they took it, they took it to you know, landfill sites where there'd been pollution in the past and treatment plant sites with all kinds of chemicals exposed to it. And they just dumped these three million tons of this fungus on, on, this, on the soil. That's right. And what they actually found is not only did the fungus thrive and grow really, really well, but they actually sort of sucked and leached all the toxins out of the soil. It's amazing. It's really, really amazing. And one of the most um, important aspects from an engineering point of view is it means instead of having to extract these pollutants and take them to a treatment facility, mm. you can actually treat it on site. Yeah, that's right. Which so saves a lot of money in transport. As well, as well as the also environmental damage, because you can either just basically declare it landfill and not worry about it, and say, ah, it's just going to pollute there, or you can try and burn it off and put it in an incinerator to burn, which is, again, really quite expensive and difficult. So being able to leave it where it is, dump some of this nice fungi on it, let it feast, and then getting rid of the problem, that's a great way to rehabilitate the ground. Uh, and there's lots of other sort of unique novel um, applications for this sort of concept. So it's called myco or phyto remediation, which is either using funguses or plants to um, clear up a toxic environment. Hmm. Um, in Norway, they actually use bright blue plants to extract some poisons from the soil. And then those plants could still be sold safely um, as house decorations, like bouquets of flowers. Wow, wow. So that's, that's, that's even better from an environmental reuse perspective because you're just using the same thing to actually have something that you can market and sell. They have an economic use, so yeah. it's really, really powerful. And also then they can be thrown away safely in the garbage disposal mm. um, and still be safely contained. So it's actually a really safe and interesting way to dispose of these chemicals. Um, some plants actually, not only containing these toxins, they actually break them down in the body. Uh, in the in their cellular walls. Wow. Okay. So that's that's a really fascinating way to actually deal with one of the byproducts of pollution and landfill. But Justin, we've forgotten the most effective way of making money using this process. Ah, uh, you'll have to explain it to me. We can now use funguses that extract gold from water, and so they can take all the gold particles from water, like at Sovereign Hill. Yes and make little nuggets of gold for us to sell. You're going to have to run that past me again. Well, the same process applies. Instead of incorporating toxins into their um, cellular makeup, these guys have been mutated so that they actually need or want or can process gold particles, and they do the exact same process. That's really fascinating if you have water-bound molecule elements of gold. And that's concerned a great way to reuse bacteria, but I guess to make it economically profitable, you have to have a certain size and concentration. 
That's right, and also it's actually quite expensive expensive to do genetic modification at this scale. So Obviously, yes. Yeah. In theory, probably a good idea, but not something really to bet your house on just yet. But, as a way to get rid of landfill, rehabilitate ground, make some beautiful flowers that you can sell and give as a lovely gift, there's no better place to turn to than fungi grown on, on pine bark in Finland to get rid of that pollution for you. So, we all know that when you're hungry, and when I mean hungry, I mean really hungry, you're looking for a bite to eat to get yourself up and ready in the morning, there's no better snack than chowing down on good old Earth, or maybe Venus, and have Mars as an after-dinner snack. Justin, are you telling me you go to your backyard, scoop up some dirt and shove it in your mouth? No, no, I'm saying that I go out to my local solar system and grab a planet and chow down on that like an apple. If I was Galactus or, you know, another large planet-eating entity. Um, but astronomers have actually found that stars, like the sun, or sunlight, actually often consume nearby rocky planets that have very close orbits to them, especially in the growth phases, as part of the, the, the growth and evolution of that star. So when we, when we look at how the solar system was formed, we actually theorise that it was basically a big accretion disk of all different types of rock and dust from the, in, in the wake in the nebula. And as the, sun, as the star at the centre of the solar system sort of collapsed in on itself and became the star, or the, the birthing of the star, all around it, from its gravitational pull, other things knocked together. Rock particles and dust started combining, and that's what formed the planets. And, that's how, and gas particles also combined around an iron core. That's how we ended up with Jupiter and Saturn. Should we be worried, though? Like, are you saying that um, sometimes in the sun's actual lifespan with its planets, it can just reach out and eat planets? Or are you saying this is in the birthing, the time of birth? We have to remember that the life cycle that we talk about for stars is incredibly long. So that the universe itself is about 14 billion years old. And our solar system has been around for, and our sun itself is only around 4.6 billion years old, right? So it's obviously not as old as the universe, and our planet is, is slightly younger than that. And when we, our solar system formed, um, we actually had a whole bunch of different objects in there. That's actually one of the big theories about how the moon was formed, was in fact that our, our Earth, planet Earth, was collided with another object that's sort of hanging around in the formation of the solar system about the size of Mars. And the two things ran into each other. Basically, Earth became molten and crazy and spewed off this whole bunch of iron and rock, and that became the moon. So collisions and combinations and stuff, especially in the early days, are quite common. At the end of a star's life, depending on its size, um, when it starts burning different types of elements, it goes through a different process and it can often expand in size. And so when they're burning these heavy elements, when they've run out of hydrogen and helium for their fusion processes, they start making more and more as they get more and more desperate. Think about it, if you have a fireplace and you, you've run out of firewood and newspaper and then you start throwing in furniture and other things to try and burn, eventually you run out of stuff to burn. And what they found is that when this happens, it's actually, since it's a, a more unstable reaction, the actual size of the star expands. And it can often expand into the orbit of some of the smaller planets. For example, if you looked at Earth, if the sun were to expand, it would probably easily swallow Mercury and perhaps even Venus. But some recent work being done at the Vanderbilt University um, by Trey Mack, who's a graduate student in astronomy, has been looking at and modelling different kinds of stars out there and how, how you could actually pick up if a star is going to eat its baby planets and what actually happens if you can detect that. 
So Justin, what does it mean to build a model? Because we can't necessarily actually watch this phenomena happen because they're quite rare. So how do we actually know that this happens or what tools have we got to know how this works? That's right. So one of the amazing things that we can use to study stars, as they're especially far away, is analyze the light that comes back from them. We call this study of light spectroscopy. We can actually look at um, the, this, the wavelengths of light that come back, and that can tell us what elements are present in that light. And you may have done this kind of all kind of fun experiments where you get to look at a neon lamp and observe what, what kind of element is undertaken from it. And so what they do is they look at different stars and say, okay, well, what kind of elements are present in that star? If some unusual heavy elements that are not hydrogen or helium are present there, that's probably a good indication that it had to come from somewhere and probably it was either swallowed up from a nearby planet or um, another type of um, part of the formation, the accretion disk at the start, start of the star's formation. So this is sort of a, a combination of um, physics and astrophysics and then also astrochemistry to actually figure out the composition of these things. Well, that's right. Astrochemistry is a really important part of astrophysics. And so how they actually modeled that is they used analysis of a lot of different stars and then they said okay well if we were to get to that the, that spectral emission that we're seeing what would you have to have in a star system to actually end up with those elements being visible in the light and so you basically you start with the end light signature and then you try to have to extrapolate backwards and build a model that will end up with producing the same type of light so they actually one of the areas that they tested on was two binary stars HD 20781 and 20782 um, and they, the stars seem to have condensed out of the same dust cloud at the same time so the, a binary star system so two stars orbiting together that have, have been born out of the same sort of nebula as a starting place. Wait so they're basically like twins that actually orbit around each other right? That's right and they're both G-class star, dwarf stars which are about similar in size to our sun. And it's a bit weird to think about, but our sun, in the grand scheme of things, is actually quite small. It's a dwarf star. It's not big. It's not crazy huge. It's actually quite, quite mediocre. Now, what they've actually found is through study um, using uh, certain telescopes like Hubble and Kepler is to actually pick up that this had Jupiter-sized planets that sort of follow them in a really, really eccentric orbit. So because it's got to orbit two stars, it actually does this really weird wobbling orbit around both of them. And they actually use it to look for other exoplanets or planets around the star system as well. So when they compared the spectroscopy results from these stars, actually found that there's a lot of heavier elements there that do not match with our sun at all. Like our sun shows nothing really to, to indicate that because our sun hasn't really swallowed any nearby planets. But when they looked at these two, these two binary star systems, they found there was a lot of really heavy elements that could have come from anywhere but this swallowing of a small, rocky, Earth-like planet. And what they have calculated with the modelling is that they would have had to have consumed 10 to 20 Earth masses, so 10 to 20 times the Earth of rocky material to produce that kind of chemical output that you're seeing there. So what that's suggesting, um, it would have had to have swallowed about 10 extra Earths or two Neptune-sized planets to actually produce the amount of chem like heavy chemicals that they've seen coming out of them. So a bit like if you chuck a bunch of chemicals into a fire, you can make that fire glow different colours. Yep. Um, this sun has swallowed different planets and then emits different spectra of light. And the strength of that spectrum, the strength of that light, indicates that it would have to, you'd have to have thrown a lot of you know, chemical into it to produce that light. 
And so it's really quite fascinating that they've, they've analysed the light from these stars and use it to back extrapolate and say, actually, hang on, to get to this point, we would have to do a lot of combination and swallowing. And, you know, um, with the right amount of combination, and they, what they actually think is that the gas giant nearby in this binary star system actually shepherded in the smaller rocky planets into the stars and fed them. So basically, this Jupiter-sized planet nearby to the two stars actually fed small rocky planets to appease the hungry star system. Like a sacrifice. That's what we have to do. We have to start knocking smaller planets into the sun to prevent it from getting hungry and attacking us. I don't think it's a matter of the sun being hungry. Um, I think it's more a matter of the fact that it was the orbit was being destabilized. In our solar system, Jupiter acts as a, as a protective shepherd. What it actually does is it captures small planets and asteroids and puts them into its own orbit, which is one of the reasons why Saturn and Jupiter have so many moons, is that it just keeps capturing things that start heading towards our solar system. And Jupiter acts basically as a collective shield. In fact, Jupiter took a bullet for us in the mid-90s when it absorbed in a massive impact the comet and comet Shoemaker-Levy 9, and it gave Jupiter a massive black eye for about four months after being hit by it, but it took that bullet for us to prevent Earth from getting hit. So Jupiter is the watchdog of our of our solar system, but in um, this this nice binary star system, HD 20781 and 20782 were fed by their Jupiter-sized planet to keep them alive and producing interesting coloured light. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we've talked about ways to re-harness bacteria to help clear the earth of pollution, ways that planets can be eaten by stars, and how we can pick that up. As well as looking at some of the genetic histories of divergent evolution that led to the Kiwis rise in New Zealand. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.